When I first arrived in KL, uh, my wife, Melissa, very kindly got me a gym membership. But with that gym membership came uh, certain expectations, uh, certain fair demands were attached to that wonderful gift. I was expected, firstly, to go to the gym regularly, uh, at least more than uh, once every other month, hopefully at least once a week. Uh, I was expected to keep a logbook of my progress, uh, to note down what exercises I had done, how many calories I had burned. Uh, and the final uh, expectation, the final fair demand, was that over time I would gradually lose weight. You know, fair demands given for my well-being. But you can probably tell I wasn't very faithful in keeping them. Well, today we have a summary of God's demands for his people. Not unfair demands, demands through which they will be blessed if they keep to them. Uh, just a quick reminder of where we are in Exodus at this point. God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and he saved them to himself and brought them to Mount Sinai. Uh, they're now standing before the mountain with Moses and God is about to speak to them his law. He's already told them that if they obey his words, they will be his treasure possession in all the world. Greatly blessed with God as their God, securing them to enjoy his rest. Well, this morning we're going to focus on the Ten Commandments, these ten foundational moral laws which were given to govern Israel's conduct as God's people, for them to live as his people in the land that he would take them to. But uh, as we look at the Ten Commandments this morning, we're also going to just dip into Exodus 21 to 23, what's uh, known as the Covenant Code. It's, it's a much longer list of, of rules and regulations, uh, and most of them take the form of case laws. Uh, they give Israel an idea of what the commandments will look like in practice for them, in, in certain situations that they may face, when they are living in the land as God's people. Well, before we get to uh, those commandments, I just want us to recall, though, what Jesus has to say uh, about the law uh, that God gave to Israel. Uh, he tells us it, in the Gospels, he tells us the point of the law. Uh, what was the purpose that God had in giving it to his people? What did God hope to see happen in his people as they received his law. Jesus summarizes us uh, for us like this in, in Matthew 22, 39, 38 to 40. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus tells us God gave Israel his law to promote two things in there, a right love for God and a right love under God for their neighbour. For us as Christians today, we are called to work out these principles in our own lives. So God's law for Israel is still very relevant for us today. It guides us as we seek to love God as his people and love our neighbour in a manner that is pleasing to him. Okay, so let's take a look at them. The Ten Commandments. Now, now if you want to uh, test a Bible student, uh, here's what you could do. You could ask them, 
tell me, how do you think the commandments begin? And if they say in response, well, as you know, that's, that's easy. It starts with the first commandment, of course. You shall have no other gods before me. If they say that, please make sure you take them back to their Bibles. When God gives his people his law, he doesn't start with a command. He starts with a, a very succinct but important history lesson. Have a look in chapter 20, verses 1 to 2 with me. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, these laws that God gives to Israel here, they're not the means by which God Israel will become God's people. It wasn't like that back in the Old Testament, and it isn't like that for us as Christians today. Uh, only after God had rescued his people does he tell them, this is how you're to live. And it's the same for us as a church, redeemed from slavery to sin in Christ. Well, now, after we've received that great rescue, Jesus, as our Lord says to us, this is how we are to live as his saved people. Uh, we can break the commandments down into, into those two principles that Jesus mentioned, love for God, and that's what we see in the first four. And then love for others is primarily what's concerned in the final six of these of these commandments. But the first commandment, it, it covers all of them. Uh, we break this one every time we break any of the others, the first commandments. No, no other gods, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, God starts with this exclusive claim to absolute authority. And this is the same God who brought all things into being, and as such he does have an exclusive claim on our lives. This is not just a general call to believe in some kind of God out there. It's a command from a particular God, the only God. Not Allah, not Krishna, not Rama, but Yahweh, the great I Am. The one who has made himself known to us now, supremely, in Jesus. And I guess the question for us is, have we offered our lives to him in worship as the one true God? Have we bowed the knee to him? And if we have, does he have our exclusive worship? Do we just worship him on a Sunday and then worship other things during the week? The God of money or career or family or, or something else. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And what that means for Israel is spelt out in the, in the remaining commandments, the commandments 2 to 10. Uh, if the first commandment concerned worshipping the one true God, then the second commandment concerns worshipping him in the right way. Commandment 2, no idols. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. God, God tells Israel they must not buy into the idolatrous practices of the nations around them. Uh, they sought to, to honour their so-called gods by creating images of them, making little statues and then bowing down to these things in reverence of their gods. And that practice is strictly forbidden. For God's people. But what is the big deal? Why can't we just draw a picture of uh, draw a picture of God or use an object to represent him to us and then and then show respect to him by, by bowing down to these things? Well friends, the problem is if God is the creator of everything, then he is necessarily beyond his creation in every way. There's nothing that he has made that can rightly depict him 
to us uh, the greatness of his character and his glory. So to worship anything in this world as though it could represent him will actually, in the end, it will just demean him. It will misrepresent who God is. God didn't point to an object and say, look, Israel, this is what I'm like. You see how Moses later in Deuteronomy recounts the giving of, of these laws, what we're looking at today. Uh, uh, what he says in Deuteronomy 4 verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. God reveals himself by his word. So to relate to him rightly, God's word is what we must hear. That's why the Bible is central in our meetings here at Smack, Because God's word is his chosen means to make himself known to us. As it testifies to Jesus, God's son, the living word who supremely shows us what God is like. So, so to relate to God rightly, well, we must hear his word with faith and obey him. Bowing down to objects that are said to represent him, we cannot, we must not do that. Whether those objects be religious or not, they cannot represent God to us rightly. They can only demean him. So we do not bow down to them. We come to God on his terms, not our own. Third commandment, honour God's name. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, while many have taken this to simply be a prohibition against using God's name as a swear word, and, and friends, that kind of speech is deeply inappropriate and wrong in, in any context. But if that's all we see this commandment as applying to, just not, not taking, not using God's word as a swear word, I think we miss the point. God has made his personal name Yahweh known to Israel during the Exodus, during their deliverance, bringing them out. Uh, Yahweh was that, you remember from Exodus 3, it's that short form of the phrase, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. It, it expressed God's faithful character. I will be exactly what I promise I will be for my people. And in vain here, well, that literally means to act in a false way or without substance. So the real issue with this commandment's addressing is Israel associating God's name Yahweh, that speaks of his faithfulness and his integrity, associating that special name with a false practice. Some examples, such as invoking uh, the name of Yahweh in an oath and not fulfilling it. Uttering a word in God's name when it doesn't come from him. Uh, really serious, because God's name, and so his reputation, is set with Israel before all the nations. If Israel remain faithful to God, then his name will be glorified in their eyes, as they are known as God's people, the people of Yahweh. But as if they refuse to honour God rightly in their sin, well then... God's people, Israel, the people of Yahweh, well, his, his reputation will sink with them. So God warns them. He will punish severely those who misrepresent his name in false practices. Well, friends, as God's people today, we bear the name of Christ. We are known as Christians. And we are called to confess him to others, that he is Lord. I remember being encouraged by a brother uh, Tim, Tim, when you meet new people, 
you should confess Christ quickly. Don't wait too long. But as he encouraged me to do that, he warned me as well, Tim, if you do, please make sure that your life before those people testifies to who Jesus is, that he is Lord. See, there are, there are a few things more damaging to gospel witness than careless public sin committed day to day in front of our friends, in, in front of our colleagues, in front of our own family. When we claim to represent Christ but deny him in our actions. Brothers and sisters, we bear the name of God in Jesus. Let's honour him in the way that we conduct ourselves, especially in the eyes of others. Well, commandment four, Sabbath rest. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, verse eight. See, God instituted the, the Sabbath day as the day on which Israel should rest and remember him, remembering particularly his deliverance of them uh, from Egypt, from slavery. Uh, the Sabbath rest would be a, a weekly reminder of the eternal rest that God had saved his people for. Now, it's, it's interesting that this is the only commandment that is not explicitly repeated in the New Testament. And there is a lot of debate as to what this law means for us as Christians today. Uh, those who, who believe in still observing a Sabbath day, they normally do so on a Sunday in remembrance of Jesus and his resurrection in which we are now saved. Now, personally, I don't think we're under the Sabbath law in a strict sense. I think Jesus fulfilled that in his coming. Remember his words that he, he said to those uh, in his ministry, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, friends, if we're Christians, then we've entered into God's rest continually, the rest of knowing him by his son. Uh, in that sense, every day is a Sabbath for us. But we're told that this is an area where we are free to disagree as Christians. It, Paul in Romans 14:5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So if you're, if you're convicted that there's a, a particular way you should observe rest on a Sunday, then do it. Be convinced in your own mind and then honour God in that. That's important. But even if we, if we don't observe a Sabbath rest on a Sunday in a strict sense, it's still important that we take a day off a week. God reminds Israel in verse 9 that, that one day off in seven is a, is a pattern that he built into creation. Long before he ever passed down the Sabbath law, God made us to work six days and to rest on the seventh. That's important for us. You know, physically, it's a, a day off to refresh, to distress from a busy working week. I made a note at this point in, in, in my sermon as I was preparing. I was writing this part at 1.18 in the morning on Friday this past week. It was such a relief at that point to know that my day off was coming up soon when I could just put the prep aside and rest. Rest helps us spiritually. A, a day off to remember that there's more to life than work. Set some time, a decent amount of time uh, aside to pray to read God's word, to, to regain perspective on what life is really about. And rest is important for us socially. I mean, given the constant pace of our society, we struggle to make decent time for family and friends that we need and they need us. We greatly benefit from the discipline of a day of rest. It's the way God made us. Commandment five, honour your parents. And now we're turning from, from the laws that focus primarily on how Israel were to relate to God to the other principle of love for neighbour 
in honour of him. God cares greatly about how we treat others as his people. Verse 12. Honour your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's, 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 it's wonderful watching a young child boast in how amazing they think his parents are. My mum's the best cook in the world. My dad's the best driver on the roads. Now, if my son Josiah said those things, at least he'd got one of them right. But how quickly things can change as we grow up. I remember in my teenage years, I had a terrible attitude towards my parents. I think this, this saying from Mark Twain nails it, really. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. Friends, God cares about the way we honour our parents. And for Israel, the, the parents would be the ones responsible for passing this law of life onto the next generation, onto their children. And so for the children, respect for their parents' instructions was essential. That's why this law has a promise attached to it, that, that you might go well in the land. As they honoured the law that the parents had passed down to them. I trust some of us have been blessed with godly parents who have taught us the gospel, who read God's word with us when we were young, pointed us to life in his son. I, I count myself greatly blessed that my parents instructed me well in the ways of the Lord. And for some of us, I know that won't have been the case. Either way, we are called to honour our parents. That doesn't mean blind obedience to their every wish. God is still our our highest authority, and we are to love him even if that means disappointing our parents at times. But we need to think through carefully what it will mean to honour our folks at every stage in life. And keeping in contact with them when we're far from home, if we're overseas. When was the last time we called, shared some news, asked them how they were going? Or if they are here with us in Malaysia, do we visit them? Do, do we seek to care for their needs where we can as those who cared for us. God says, honour your parents. Commandment 6, you shall not murder. Literally, no killing. Now that doesn't mean a, a, a life wasn't to be taken under any circumstances. You know, capital punishment is prescribed in certain cases in Exodus 21 to 23. Later, Israel would be called by God as his army and they would fight battles inevitably leading to the death of others at their hands. And this command, it, it, it doesn't apply to all life. It only applies to human life, not to animals or trees and other living things. No, God has built an order into his creation. And he has made us as human beings distinct from that creation. We are those who bear his image. We carry a unique dignity before him. Human life is sacred to God, whatever our status in this world. And so it can only be taken justly under the most extreme of circumstances. In fact, uh, an important theme that runs throughout the, the case laws of Exodus 21 to 23, it's God's concern to protect human life, particularly the vulnerable. So for Israel's slaves, who were the equivalent of, of the house servants we have here in Malaysia today, well, we read in Exodus 21 verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Now, God isn't promoting Israel here to strike at their slaves. Rather, he's warning them of what would happen if they did such a thing. 
that that slave would be avenged by the people. For widows and orphans, we read in Exodus 22, verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. See, these parties would have been far more vulnerable to harm given their situation. They are precious in God's eyes. They are to be treated fairly. Friends, are we honouring God in the way we treat our maids, our employees, our contract workers, all those who are at this time under our authority? God cares about how we treat them. There's one particular case, though, I want us to focus on with this commandment, uh, no murder in mind. It's in Exodus 21, verse 22. Let me just read it. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. So the situation here, two men have got into an argument and things have got out of control. They start to fight. Uh, and in the commotion, a pregnant woman is hurt. So two principles follow if this is the case. If she has a premature delivery as a result of being beaten and hit, but no harm has taken place, well, then there will be a heavy fine, uh, uh, the decision to be made between the husband and the judge in the matter. But if tragically harm does take place, then the punishment is to fit the crime. If necessary, a life for a life. Now, we're not told specifically who is being harmed in this situation, whether it be the mother or her unborn child. We're simply told if there is harm. And so I think it, it refers equally to both the mother and her unborn child. Friends, the lives of unborn children are sacred in the eyes of God. Now, this is a sensitive issue. And for those of us particularly who are affected by it, we must remember there is no sin that cannot be forgiven in Jesus' blood. But equally, what God counts as sacred, we must as well. We should seek to honour and protect human life at whatever stage we find it. We know from the Sermon on the Mount, though, don't we, that God is not merely concerned with physical murder in this law. Jesus warns us that bearing an unjust anger in our hearts against a brother or sister or just a neighbour is tantamount to murder in our hearts. We're to honour God in the way we treat others, made in his image, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, as well as in our actions, what we do and what we say. Well, commandment seven. We're going to move through a bit more quickly now. Do not commit adultery. On average, one in every four marriages in Western society uh, are said to end now in divorce. And the most common reason, adultery, unfaithfulness in marriage. God designed marriage to be a, a lifelong union between husband and wife, uh, the only safe and right context for sexual relations, and, and the basis for the family environment in which children are born and nurtured and grow. And adultery, therefore, is a great offence to God, the, the breaking, uh, the sinful breaking of that marital covenant between husband and wife. 
It, it wreaks havoc in the fabric of human society. Now, God's people are not to be associated with this kind of unfaithfulness, not, not just in a physical sense, sleeping with someone or having sexual relations of any kind with someone who isn't our spouse, either because we're not married yet or within a marriage. But Jesus goes deeper again, doesn't he, in his Sermon on the Mount, that acting with lustful intent means we are committing adultery in our hearts. Uh, maybe that, that porn habit that we just don't want to kick gazing at members of the opposite sex on the street, undressing them in our minds, or reading unhelpful books that we know are going to promote lustful fantasies. Adultery of any kind is incredibly destructive and against God's will for us, his people. We are to flee sexual immorality. Commandment 8. Do not steal. We're not talking just grand theft auto here. Any way in which we take the property of another without permission. Now here in Malaysia, there is much tolerance when it comes to theft. I remember being shocked after only a few weeks of first arriving in Malaysia. Uh, I walked into what looked to be a very legitimate DVD store. And inside, I, I found to my delight, they had the latest season of 24. Big, big fan of 24. Uh, and it was it was it was uh, put there at this ridiculous price. It was incredibly cheap. Uh, I thought to myself, well, this, Malaysia is amazing. These guys must get tax levies on movies. This is my kind of place. Uh, and like I said, the shop looked really legitimate. The box set was uh, certainly looked genuine. It was only once I got home and I put the DVD into the player, I realised, no, oh, this is not authentic at all. See, piracy is not taken very seriously here in KL, even by the church. But it is stealing. Likewise, photocopying whole textbooks, downloading music through web sharing sites that we haven't paid for. As God's people, we are to respect the property of others. Commandment 9. Do not bear false witness. As is fleshed out in another case law from uh, Exodus 23, verse 1, we read, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Speaking precisely about others to others for, dis, uh, for dishonest gain was a serious offence. Israel were to love one another with their words, not to profit through misrepresenting others in civil disputes. So the principle here is love for one another in the way that we use our tongue. You know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's probably the most stupid proverb I've ever heard. Our tongues are powerful instruments which can build up and utterly destroy with only a few words. A rash word said in anger or that little bit of juicy gossip comes our way and it's so tempting to just take it on board without thinking, to, to share it with others, not pausing for one moment to ask ourselves, is what I'm about to say true? And even if it's true, is it helpful? Is it necessary? Is it loving? Is it going to build up the person that I'm about to speak it to and the person to which it refers? refers. Friends, in our day and age, this issue takes on a whole new face with the birth of social media. 
you know, are we careful in the way we use our words on our blogs and through our Twitter accounts? They are our words. They might be easier to type than they are to say, but they are still our words. If Jesus were to look at what we've put on our Facebook wall this past week, would he be pleased? Could he see that what we've put up there has been put up in love? Commandment 10. Do not covet. Uh, this is said to be the only law for Israel that specifically targeted their inner thoughts, their inner person. Uh, they were to be jealous in their hearts of what their neighbours had. Rather, they're to be content with what God had granted to them at that season in life. And that's a healthy sign, friends, that God is number one in our lives as he should be. Remember the first commandment, that we're not putting our worth in the things that we have or the things that we don't have. And so we desire them so much, we say we must have them. A little while ago, we and my family, we got a new car. And for me, it was quite an upgrade. It was our, it's our first 4x4. Four four. I was really, really delighted with it. But in my heart, I know that as I've been driving Melissa to work over the past week, I've been noticing other 4x4s four on the road. I'm thinking to myself as I've seen, hmm, 4x4 four four Range Rover. Nice to have one of those. Oh, why don't I have one of those? Now we become so quickly dissatisfied with the good gifts God grants to us, don't we? And generally speaking, between us, we have a lot of those good gifts here at SMAC. Yet I still find myself looking to the other side, wishing the grass was a little bit greener where I'm standing. That is idolatry. Looking for satisfaction in the things that God has not granted to us rather than trusting and enjoying him and being satisfied with what he's granted to us, on top of the greatest blessing of eternal life in his Son. Well, three points to consider as we close. Firstly, God's demands, his law, reveals our sin. God's law reveals our sin. I have a hate-hate relationship with my weighing scales at home. Not a love-hate relationship, a hate-hate relationship. Each, each morning, I will stand on them, and all they do is tell me how I've missed the mark of my target weight. They, they do nothing to help me lose weight. They just tell me how much I failed. They weigh me down with that reality. Friends, if, as we've looked at God's law this morning, for his people, you've been weighed down by it because you've seen afresh how far you've missed the mark. That is a good thing because God is helping you to recognize your sin in the light of his holy law. All the ways in which we do fall short of God's good standard for us and miss the mark in his eyes. See, this, this law was not given to Israel primarily to make them righteous, but to, to show them just how far they fall short. None of us can keep God's law in our own strength, can, can be good in his eyes on the basis of our own works. Our hearts are deeply rebellious against God. And trying to follow some rules that he gives to us won't change that. It will just promote us in further sin. 
God's demands reveal our sin. But secondly, God's demands reveal our saviour. God's demands that his law reveals our saviour to us. You see, as God's good law condemns us, that shows us up for what we are, it, it forces us to look elsewhere for hope, for life with God. And we see that hope met for us in another. Uh, the one whom this law points us forward to, the fulfilment of this law, as we saw in our New Testament reading. Jesus, as one who was born under the law, and observed it in every way God intended from the heart. As God's son, he honoured his father in every way that we failed. And so loved God and loved his neighbour perfectly. And the chief way we see that is in the cross. Uh, the one law keeper in obedience to God gave his life for us lawbreakers, his neighbour. Our every sin was laid on him. So that now as we, as we depend not on, on our ability to keep God's law, which we can't, but rather as we depend on Jesus' death, we are forgiven. Our every sin, our every transgression is removed. That we can now know new life with God that doesn't depend on keeping the law, but on Jesus. His sinless blood shed for us. If we've taken refuge in him, then the law has no power to condemn us. Our every transgression has been removed. Finally, God's demands reveal his love for us to walk in. It reveals his love for us to walk in. You see, now, have, now that God has saved us to himself in his son, he has poured his spirit into our hearts, having, us, having made us clean by his blood, so that we can now know and honour him as our Lord in a way that Israel never could. We can follow in the example of love that Jesus has set for us in the one who fulfilled the law, who loved God and loved his neighbour perfectly. And we can now follow in his example by the strength his spirit grants. And this law is a guide for us. In that great endeavour. It's no longer a burden. Because we're no longer judged by it. Jesus is our righteousness. But this law is still to be our guide. As by the spirit. We seek to love God. And our neighbour. As his people. It's the very purpose he saved us for. That we would be holy. As he is holy. And so live lives that testify to the gospel. That testify to the goodness of his grace. And so tell the world out there just how great and just how loving our God really is. So brothers and sisters, let us be doing that in his strength in the coming week. Let's pray together.